Amen. Um, okay, so if you, get, if you got your Bibles, get them open to Matthew 5. It's our last a week in Matthew 5. Um, uh, I want to say from the beginning that anyone who, anyone who knows Christ knows that self-sacrifice is central uh, to what it means to be a disciple. I, I read this week uh, this line, Christians of all people should understand that self-sacrifice is at the heart of what the Bible calls the good life. The only way to save our life is to lose it. And Jesus made this clear in, in Matthew 16. Look at this passage. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Self-sacrifice. This word is at the center of the Christian life because the cross is at the center. Understand that. It's a critical piece. To flourish in your relationship with Jesus, it requires self-sacrifice. To flourish in any relationship with another fallen, sinful human being, it requires self-sacrifice. If you want to flourish in your marriage, self-sacrifice. If you want to flourish in parenting your kids, self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice is, is distinctly Christ-like, it's cross-centered, and, and church, it is completely countercultural, which means that it goes right against the constant flow of our world and culture. I mean, prominent words used today flow in the opposite direction of the gospel. Self-expression, self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-assurance, self-determination, self-love. It is the most common idolatry in the history of the world. Self-love. More people bow their knee to the throne of the God of self than any other God. Are the institutions that, that, that set at the very foundation of our country, things like governments and schools and universities and businesses, they exist primarily to serve the individual self. Just listen to the advertisements and the promotions and the self-promotion. They run in the opposite direction of Christ's call to self-sacrifice. And so because this, this call to self-sacrifice is, is central to what it means to be a disciple, to experience the flourishing life that Christ has for us in his kingdom, Jesus had to talk about it in his first sermon. Enter Matthew 5, 38 through 48. This last section of Matthew 5, illustration by illustration, challenge by challenge, this passage intends to systematically strip you of all of your rights to self and leave you completely dependent on the grace of God. It's not an easy passage to receive, especially when the world and the flesh is rushing at you and pressing you in the opposite direction. But this is discipleship. So I want us to be challenged by this together. I want us to walk in this together. I want us to encourage one another together. This is, we're going to need it when you consider the truth of this passage. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of walk us through the passage carefully to make sure we understand the parts. There are some parts that are very foreign to our understanding. 
and the illustrations that he's using needs a bit of translation. And then we're going to bring this to bear and apply this on our lives. Here we go. Starting by working through the passage. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This, simply, church, is Old Testament law that was established to create a response to, a response of fairness to when someone's rights were violated in some way. And so it, it, would, it was an attempt to avoid that. You know what happens sometimes when like, someone does something to someone and then like, the, there's retaliation that goes to here and then the next person retaliates to here? It's attempting to create a semblance of fairness. But into this, look what Jesus says in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Okay, let me just pause there because this requires some sort of a careful understanding. This, this um, starts to clarify the context of the passage. And um, this, the principles that we're about to walk into are not intended to sort of be these uh, Judeo-Christian values that we sort of pull out of Scripture and think, you know what, Th this needs to be the way that the world's run or the way that a nation's run. No. Jesus is speaking specifically to the individual disciple and his relationships, his or her relationships. It's not advocating for something greater than that because it, it, it explicitly, as we're going to see as it unfolds, it requires that there is a relationship with Christ for any of this to be possible. It is not to be imposed as a rule or a law. Now also, when it says here, do not resist the one who is evil, let me be clear from the beginning that it, at, at no point is Jesus advocating in any way for people to endure abuse or to look the other way when a crime is committed. God forbid that we have any understanding of this that would allow us to justify actions that are abusive or are unlawful. And in situations where there's abuse or criminal activity, you should immediately report it to the governing authorities. Clear? Okay, there's no justification for that. So then out of this, do not resist the one who is evil, Jesus is gonna give us four illustrations that are gonna lay down this principle that we're supposed to lay down our rights to self. Look with me, verse 39, second half. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is a denial of self. It's not saying that we should stand and just you know, slap, slap, turn the cheek, slap, take another one. The, the, the principle, it, it's an illustration to paint a picture that I'm going to deny myself when wronged. I'm going to not move to a place in my flesh where I respond with retribution or retaliation or revenge. Yeah, you, you guys know how the flesh riles you up in that, right? Someone does something and you're like, really? You want to go? And then you're like, you're automatically, like that is fleshly. Your flesh ri like rises up. That's what's rising up. It's not, trust me, it's not the Spirit of God. You, you might try to justify it at times as though it's the Spirit of God. That's not the Spirit of God. Because I know what you're going after there. You're like, yeah, I'll get you. And then there's the one-up. And that just leads to destruction, relationally and in our souls. Jesus here is painting a different picture. Verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. These are not terms we use often. Um, when I put on my coat, I'm not like, look, my cloak. 
And, um, and so we don't understand these. And so uh, very simple clothing in this culture would have been a loincloth, which would have been underwear, then an undergarment, which would have been sort of wrapped around. That would have been this idea of a tunic, and then a cloak or something sort of like an upper garment. Now the principle here is not to give up your clothes when sued and walk around in your loincloth, okay? That's not acceptable in any culture. And I'm like, I'm just following Jesus. No, no, you're disturbing everyone. <laughs> and I'm going to report you to the authorities. Okay, one commentator rightly summed up the principle that comes out of this verse is this. It's a radically unselfish attitude to one's rights and property. There you go. Then, verse 41, look at what verse 41 says. It says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Honest confession, I, I think I passed through that verse a number of times, and my only understanding of it was one mile, two miles. Is that like if my wife wants to go on a walk? Like, I'll go two miles with you. I, I, I didn't understand the passage, and when I studied it, um, the reference is to the principle of commandeering it's a term that, that in this time period, a Roman soldier could command civilian labor. So a Roman soldier could come by because they, they sort of dominated the area and controlled everything, and they could come by and be like, hey, 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 come on, help me. And what Jesus was saying is when that was imposed by the governing authorities, he's saying don't resist, don't complain, go the extra mile. Now listen, there's so many places that I could go with this verse regarding our attitude towards governing authorities. But I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit on that one. But certainly the principle is self-sacrifice. It's self-sacrifice. It's different than our culture. Then verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is self-sacrifice with your resources. Now again, 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 be careful, church, that we don't try to read something that Jesus is saying and do what the Pharisees did and try to create these laws out of it or these rules of living for every single situation. It's not calling you to give everything away to anyone, to, to, to anyone who asks without any discretion so that you become a target for anyone who might take advantage of you. That's not what it's teaching here. The principle is to care about the needs of others and be ready to sacrifice your resources to care for one another. And I see this playing out in beautiful ways in our church. All the time, I, sometimes I hear about needs and it's already the community around them is already provided in abundance. And I'm like, that's it. That's it. That's the, that's the role that a disciple plays and lives in. Then verse 43 now transitions to kind of this final section and of 43 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, earlier in this passage, when he says that, he's referring to something in the Old Testament law. This verse is not in the Old Testament law. This was a response to Jewish leaders who were suggesting and, and, and communicating a hatred towards outsiders, a favoritism of God's people over others that Jesus is responding to here. And so, then look what he says in 44 through 47. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Man. 
That's a challenge. But that requires something different from what the world offers, I promise you that. So that, verse 45, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. It's common grace. God doesn't discriminate. The son that he rises, he brings it up on the evil and on the good and sends rain, the blessing of rain and the produce that comes from that on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? It's rhetorical because it's because you're not meant to have a response because by the time he says it, you're like, ouch, right? You're like, I can't respond. Okay, I get what you're saying. He goes on. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The most hated group to the Jewish people, he's like, they do the same. They love those who love them. And, and, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. What he's saying here is he's saying, listen, responding with love to people who love you is easy love. That is, that's, that's natural love. It's not supernatural. It's not going to showcase the work of God because the work of God and the love of God extends itself even to people who don't receive it or respond even rightly to it. Even people who might persecute you. Jesus is like, that love is supernatural. That kind of love is going to require everything that the gospel offers and the power of the Spirit working in and through you. And that's a challenge. And then we're left with verse 48. He saves his Biggest swing for the last verse here. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Church, listen, that is only possible if you're yielded to the, to the perfect person of Jesus Christ. We're going to unpack that more in one of the points coming, but it requires a Galatians 2.20 perspective, this whole idea of, 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 of responding to self and having the rights that we believe that we have kind of torn down. It's Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Self-sacrifice. That is the distinguishing mark of God's love. Get out of your mind the, the worldly definitions of love that, that rush in all the time in our culture and let our hearts and minds be formed by what God says and shows about love. Self-sacrifice is the distinguishing mark of God's love. Amen? Man. And so looking at this passage as a whole, here's the main application. Big move. Behold his love for his love to flow through you. Behold his love for his love to flow through you. When, you. when you behold God's love, when you understand the ramifications and the implications of his love, when you understand the, the depth and the breadth of God's love, it is captivating. And it is the front edge of change that God wants to bring into your life. And, and when, you, when you see it and when you know it, there will be a willingness to sacrifice anything to receive it more fully, to experience it more deeply, and to see it flowing through you. And so three critical actions that God wants to produce in our life to, to allow God's love to flow more uh, uh, constantly and powerfully through our lives. Here's the first one. Repent of self-centeredness. Repent of self-centeredness. The illustrations that Christ gives in, 
in, in verses 38 through 42 are examples of how self-centeredness literally blocks the flow of God's love. Self-centeredness operates like, like cholesterol um, uh, uh, blocks the arteries uh, to your heart. It builds up plaque or, or it slows, so it slows and blocks the flow of God's love through you. And so um, this is, God's love is always flowing to you. It's always flowing to you. There's nothing you can do to, to cut off the reality of God's love flowing to you. But when it gets to you, if this sort of uh, uh, pipe represents you, what, what God wants to do is he wants his love to flow in, impact your life and other people's lives. But the problem is, there's this access point we'll call self. And this is the problem. And so what happens is, is that um, self-centeredness, whether it's um, my property and the attitude I have towards that, starts to feed in through myself and starts to do a work on the inside of where God wants to flow it. And if I'm like claiming my rights, my rights, the selfishness that comes from that, that starts to get into and interrupt the flow of God's uh, a love in and through my life and time and I start to declare man it's my time I'm going to do what I want with it and, and as the more I affirm self cease bad stuff's coming out everywhere and, um, and so it just starts to get stuffed into our lives and our needs and my needs and what I want and how I want it and the resources that I have and I just start to press all of this into my life and then the reality is is that God's love can is always accessing in, but as you can see, it starts to block or hinder the flow of God's love through my life and produces trash. And, and, and this move, th- this is now, as God's love is wanting to flow in and through me, this is the access both to other people and even into my own life. It's blocked. It's hindering it. And I was reading this week and I was caught by a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones who was preaching on this very passage. It's a longer quote, but I just want you to receive it this morning. I want it to confront you like it confronted me. No man can practice what our Lord illustrates here unless he is finished with himself. With his right to himself, his right to determine what he shall do, And especially must he finish with what we commonly call the right of the self, which, by the way, is pretty foundational to the founding of our country. So it is in the fabric of our culture. In other words, we must not be concerned about ourselves at all. The whole trouble in life, as we have seen, is ultimately this concern about self. And what our Lord is inculcating or pointing towards here is that it is something of which we must rid ourselves entirely. We must rid ourselves of this constant tendency to be watching the interest of self, to be always on the lookout for insults or attacks or injuries, always in this defensive attitude. God, please help us. All that must disappear, and that of course means that we must cease to be sensitive about self, this morbid sensitiveness. This whole condition in which self is on edge and so delicately and sensitively poised and balanced that the slightest disturbance can upset its equilibrium must be got rid of. Any conversation about snowflake culture should read this, this quote. 
because that's the result of our culture. The reason why there's so much instability is because our focus is so entirely on self that we sometimes can't even see ourselves out of it. We don't even understand how much it's blocking, but we see other people and the reality and the fruitfulness of their life and we go, what is the difference? And so often the difference is that self is blocking or hindering. Self-centeredness, self-focus is literally stopping the flow of God's love to our own hearts and through us to others. And it leads to this place of sensitivity. Which, which then, church, has in, in my life and in yours, what it can do is it can start to trigger anxiety and stress and anger responses and a host of other issues. And, and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, in, later in the message, he gives the challenge to process carefully how self is impacting you. Why, why does that circumstance that I find in my life, why is it upsetting me? Uh, why, how is my focus on self impacting my thinking or my work or my, the things I do or my interactions with other people? Start to ask the hard questions. See where and how self-interest and self-concern is plaguing you. And confess it to God and begin to repent of self-centeredness. Ask him to, 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 to work in your life so that he can begin to break it down and so that you can identify it and, and begin to remove self-centeredness from your life and you're like, I don't want that anywhere hindering the flow of God and you just start to do the work in your own heart as you evaluate and you're like, I don't want that and you start to see the way that self is playing itself out and you just want to repent of all of it and you're examining your heart and your life and you're going, I don't want any aspect of self in the way of the flow of God's love to me and then through me to others. And when you experience the zeal of that, you're going to repent of self-centeredness. And it's going to come and it's going to come constantly because it's going to be required. And that leads to the second point, um, this. Uh, prepare for the war of denying self. If you think it's easy to stop feeding self, <laughs> self is you. It's your broken, sinful nature. It, it, you're kind of stuck with it. Sorry. Like this side of heaven, stuck with it. It is the great a thing that we have to endure and, and work through. It's the thing that we want God to transform in us, certainly. And this call to deny yourself is seen here in this passage from the mouth of Jesus. Denying self is a war between the spirit of your flesh and the spirit of God that wants to lead you. It's a war between these two. And the flesh is the consequence of the fall. It is, it is a result of, your, of you being a descendant of Adam. So I guess if you've got anybody to blame, blame him and Eve. Great work, guys. The spirit is given into your heart through faith, and it resides in your soul to both counsel and empower you to win the war. So you've been equipped, follower of Christ. You've been equipped. And this battle is constant in life, and I want us to be prepared for it. And so let's just see what Scripture teaches us. And this is going to be a quick survey. I'm just going to touch on the verses. I want you to get a picture of how prevalent this is. This principle is seen everywhere in the New Testament. And the war picture is clear. Galatians 5.24, 
And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So you can see the nature of the, of the flesh and our call to crucify it, to kill it. Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. But before you come to Christ, this is like screwed on to self. You have no choice. You're not like, oh, I think I'd really like to not do that anymore. It'll just, something else will flow in. There's just different flavors of self. Okay, you can be like, I'm tired of one and another one flows in. And salvation means that I'm, I can die to self, I can detach and access something different, the Spirit of God. And so, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.11, For we who live are always being given over to death, away from self, for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So even because you're not tied to it anymore, walking by faith means that I'm continually uh, not accessing the, the passions of the flesh, but I'm accessing and letting the work of God flow through me when I close off self from having access to my soul and my life. Now self produces all kinds of dangerous passions and desires and I hope that as you read and, and we think about this, it, it, it helps you understand that some things that you feel are not intended to be expressed, very different than what our culture proclaims all the time. And, but the Bible's honest in the sense that it's like they're, they're passions and desires. And so you're going to run hot on some things. Have you ever had a moment, church, where you, you think a thought or get caught in a pattern of, of thinking or living and you're like, what is wrong with me? Why am I thinking that? That's because self is still alive in some way and God's leading you to something that needs to be crucified. And in the war of denying self, you're called to flee from your desires and to deny them. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions. Not an age reference, a sort of sense of like, man, when I was youthful, I thought that those were okay. I'm not, I don't think they're okay anymore. Uh, Titus 3.3, 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Do you see the flow? Connected to our passions and desires. James 4.1, what causes quarrels and what causes fighting among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? They're still, the passions are still being let in. They're still being given access. 1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the patterns, the passions of your former ignorance. In Christ, we are called to live by faith as though we are dead to self. People who are crucified with Christ are constantly moving, desiring, longing to deny self in every area of their life. But the self is prevalent. Now listen, the self is prevalent. It, it, it's everywhere we can feel and experience these passions and desires. And self is persistent. It's never going to stop just because you're not permanently in, in, in a slavery way attached to it. It's still going to be persistent. And self is powerful. These passions and desires are real. 
And, and so you cannot accept it. You can't partner with it. You can't make a truce to be like, well, I'm just going to let self in every once in a while because then that gets all messy really quick. And uh, you've got to flee. You've got to deny. You've got to abstain from self. You've got to put it to death. You've got to crucify it. But the crazy part of self is that it doesn't, it doesn't die once and then you're done. How many of you could say amen to that? You must crucify it again and again, and in every area of your life, it's a constant war. And why do we fight this war? Why? Why do we endure in it? Because because when you have experience, God's love flowing through you, even if just for a fleeting moment, when God's love flows into your heart, And then when you start to see it flow through your heart to others, it is the most beautiful, the most powerful, and the most impactful entity in the world. It it, it changes lives. It, it, It brings tremendous blessing to you and others. It makes Jesus famous. It's where our distinctiveness as the followers of Christ is seen. It's what, it's what sets us apart from the world. It's what in the old King James Version in 1 Peter 2.9 said, it marks us as a peculiar people. It's when God's love is flowing through us, self is being repented of, we're, we're fighting the war between self and spirit, and as a product of that, increasingly over time, God's love is seen and experienced and then seen and experienced in the way that we love others, and that is the beautiful work of the gospel, amen? And, and we're captivated by this, and, 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 and it's what causes people that, to ask, like, what's different about you? You don't just love people who love you, you love people who hate you. That's way beyond religion. That's the miraculous work of the gospel, that is supernatural love. The life of Jesus manifesting in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. We fight this war because it's worth fighting. The blessings of, of victory are worth every self-sacrifice. Prepare for the war of denying self. Then finally this. Behold his perfection. Chapter 5, I, I, I can't sugarcoat it any other way. It is a um, the most intimidating call from Jesus. I think sometimes we read over verses like this and we're like, you know, I'm not perfect. I think God understands that. So I'm just going to skip on to chapter 6, verse 1. We almost get a little uncomfortable in verses like this. And uh, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't, I, I can't find an, a, a way of escape from this call. But I can give clarity. This verse is a, is a clear picture of where this entire chapter leaves you. If you've walked, as so many of us have walked through each and every verse in this chapter, man, it, it leaves you at a place where you're undone. Like, where you're like, I, I'm broken. So deeply broken. I, 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 can't, I, I, can't, I can't do this. I I feel the weight of sin and brokenness and I am needy and so often when we consider the things of this chapter, particularly this verse, we're just like, kingdom culture is impossible. 
I cannot do this. And right there, right there, Jesus draws you near to show you his power. His work in the gospel, the the power of the Spirit of God. Behold his perfection. Behold his perfection. It's yours in Christ. His perfection is yours in Christ. Don't miss that. Don't forget that reality. This call to perfection, to to understand it, to respond to it, the, the, the first move, maybe even in so many ways the only move, is to realize it's only possible in Christ. It's only possible in Christ. Only the Christian can live these things out. You can, you can take them and you can moralize them and, and you can try to teach them in some, in some Aesop's fables sort of way, but you will not live this out consistently apart from Christ. Apart from beholding his perfection. See, here's what, here's what we do with perfection. Any idea of perfection in any aspect of our life, whether in in um, the things that you do in work or in your relationships or, or maybe in a sport if you've played a sport in the past. We think about perfection as something that we do in our own effort, right? And so what we do is we get on the never-ending, exhausting hamster wheel of achievement. We're just like, I got it. I'm going to go faster. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be more disciplined. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to stay up later. I'm going to keep the wheel spinning so that I can achieve perfection. And we attempt the same thing in our spiritual life. I'm going to will myself to perfection. More time in prayer. Going to nail it. I'm going to spend more time in the Word. I'm going to be a part of more activities at church. You know, I'm going to add another area of serving on top of the 15 already that I'm doing. I am going to control and rein in my tongue. You know, this year I'm going to increase my giving. I'm going to keep the wheel spinning. And you start to believe that perfection, or might I add sanctification, is something you do. That's not the gospel. That's slavery to the law. That is religion. It's a man-centered attempt to become like God. As was shared earlier, but let me share more of the passage. 2 Corinthians 3, 16-18 describes kingdom transformation. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, now, not freedom for self, okay? Trust me, every part of your flesh is like, see? More in. It's not freedom for self. It's not a place to affirm your rights. It's freedom to become made more like Christ, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Perfection is someone you draw near to. Perfection is someone you behold. 
Beholding perfection in the person of Christ literally takes hold of your heart. As we sang earlier, it captivates you. And it's that reality, face to face with the living Christ who loves you and is for you and wants to restore you and forgive you and draw near to you. At that place, that's where your heart is moved to action. It is a response to the glory of who Jesus is. It is, it is the front edge of everything the gospel wants to achieve in your life is beholding his perfection. Turn to the Lord when it's difficult and the war is raging. We just, we just have to slow down. Slow down to behold, not slow down to do more. Slow down to behold, not slow down to do more. I was commenting to someone today, and I, I think this is going to have to be a theme in so much of what we teach in our church and train our people to is, in a lot of reading and studying I've been doing personally, I am um, uh, deeply frustrated in my own life and in our lives, in our culture, by the fact that so much of what I believe God wants to do is going to be impossible if we continue at the same pace that we're operating in life. And I'm going to trust the Spirit of God over time to do the work that I believe He's going to need to do to lead you to the good life, the flourishing life that He talks about here in Matthew 5. But um, not just the pace, but also the level of distraction that so easily leads us away from just slowing down and beholding. It takes time to realize where self is flowing in. It takes time to repent of it and then shut access and begin to experience for myself the flow of God's love in and toward my life and then through my life to others. When you're in that posture, God wants to lead us to speak to the Lord who is arrayed in glory and splendor. To, to, to approach the scriptures, not just to check off a chapter, but to, but, but, but to behold his glory. To, to take time to to rest in the perfection of his love for you. We don't behold the perfection and then, and then leave it and then go try to achieve it on our own. That's, a, that's the hamster wheel of achievement and just the Christian version of it. Where we just try through more motion to create energy. We behold and we stay. We stay in his presence where you are perfect in Christ. We stay under it, we live under it, and we quickly return to beholding when we stray or when we forget or when we disobey. Remain in the posture of beholding to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Be, th this is where, when in the posture of, of beholding, we, we then see that the grace of God has appeared, not just as an idea out there, but for me. And this is the training ground where transformation happens. Titus 2, 11 through 12. See it in the scriptures. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Because when you see the grace of God, salvation's happening. When you see the grace of God, salvation is happening. And then look at this, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. There it is upright and godly lives in the present age. Transformation of your heart happens in the posture of beholding, not on the hamster wheel of doing. 
And self is crucified in that because beholding causes us to be captivated. And when we're captivated, we become motivated. Captivated leads to motivated. And this changes our perspective and the way that we think. Beholding your heavenly Father consumes you with a passion to be like your Father. It is by His grace. It is always by His grace. Behold to be transformed, church. Behold to be transformed. Behold His perfection. Behold His love for His love to flow through you. Repent of self-centeredness and Prepare for the war of denying self and behold his perfection. Behold your God. And so the worship team is going to come out now and we, we sang this song already. This um, song, Come and Behold. It captures perfectly the heart of what we've been talking about. And so um, as, the, as, the, as the worship team begins to sing it over us, some of us are just going to need to sit underneath it and just hear it and, and let it, let it, um, let it affect the way we think and, and just receive from God who he is. Some of you are going to be ready to just to stand up and start singing it with us. Whatever you want to do, I just want to give you this space just to reflect on this call to behold. And in the midst of the song, I'm going to pray for us. But let's just uh, do that now. Whether you want to remain seated and receive this or stand and sing it out, uh, let's, uh, let's move to a place of beholding. This is the place where transformation happens. Let's do it now.